Good evening, and uh, welcome on this sort of misty, moisty night. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce Helen Wendler to you. Um, I'm going to start, introduce her by talking a little bit about uh, what seems to me uh, a new position that has opened up in American universities of late, or at least I've heard people talk about this position recently uh, in English departments and other departments. Uh, they, they talk about the things they usually talk about. Uh, they discuss medieval studies, Renaissance literature, post-colonial theory, literature and psychoanalysis, the Victorian novel, and many other things. And then at some point, at least in the last couple of years, I've heard something else come up. This is an area called the care of poetry. Now, the care of poetry, as I understand it, is not the same thing as poetry. Uh, it's, not, it's not the same thing as, say, modern British poetry, and I don't think it's the same as writing poetry or a creative writing course in poetry. In fact, it's quite possible that the care of poetry might not be a field at all. So the very phrase, the care of poetry, once floated, raises at least two questions. Uh, many more probably, but the two questions I'll mention are who could fill such a post and what exa exactly is the task to be undertaken if you did fill such a post. Now, at Harvard University, they don't have to ask this question because they have the answer to this question. <clears throat> and we are particularly fortunate to have with us this evening the answer to this very question. The answer, Helen Wendler, uh, university professor at Harvard and leading uh, critic of poetry in this country. If you happen not to be at Harvard, as some of you may not be, uh, you will have read her in the New Yorker, in the New York Review of Books, the New Republic, and many other places. Uh, Helen is the answer to the question about who could fill the post of the care of poetry uh, plainly. But more importantly, I think, and more interestingly, she's the answer to the question of what the job might be. The answer to what the job caring for poetry might be is everywhere in Helen's books and lectures and even in her conversation. Uh, I was reading a passage this morning from her early book on Wallace Stevens on Extended Wings, 1969, and I came across these words in praise of the penultimate section of Notes Towards a Supreme Fiction. I quote Helen, the poem is one of Stevens' successes by his own criterion. It resists the intelligence almost successfully. Um, I was sort of thinking about that almost and enjoying it a great deal. The sly almost is Stevens, but, the, but uh, Professor Vendor is just as sly as Stevens on this, on this subject. And I was thinking about thinking about poetry and thought and what it meant to resist the intelligence almost successfully. And then at lunchtime, I learned that we were talking, uh, learned that Professor Vendor is working on a book about poetry and thought, and she had some extremely trenchant things to say about uh, the very idea of thinking in poetry, and particularly about people who thought there wasn't any thinking going on uh, in poetry. So uh, you, can, uh, you can listen to he Helen at Harvard, you can read her, and if you're lucky enough to talk to her, you will get some of the same sense of these things. The, the care of poetry includes not, a, not asking of poetry what it can't give, but it also involves asking of it all that it can give and not asking less. Thinking of this passion for poetry, of asking everything from poetry and not accepting anything less than everything from poetry. I found myself thinking of the English critic and poet Donald Davy, a person who ferociously believed that poetry was more important than almost anything else. Well, not almost anything else, more important than anything else. <laughs> and 
I then turn to Professor Vendler's essay on Donald Davy in her book, uh, Soul Says, 1995. There she quotes uh, Davy as saying that the Puritan doctrine of election may have been wrong about many things, but not about the arts. Uh, quote Davy, oh, Helen quotes Davy, in the arts, as between the genuine and the fake, or between the achieved and the unachieved, there can be no halfway house. Professor Wendler comments, quote, even those who agree with him on this point may not be as confident as he is in personal judgments of genuineness or as joyously eager for battle on these issues. And I think there are a few people, actually, who are so eager for battle as Donald Davey was. Uh, Professor Wendler is not overconfident about judgments of genuineness, although she makes them. Uh, nor is she eager for battle, although she's willing to fight when necessary. But she certainly cares for poetry as much as Donald Davy did and has probably actually done poetry even more good than Donald Davy did. <laughs> it's, it's an essential feature of Professor Wendler's critical practice that poetry is a living subject. She writes a good deal about American poets because she's American and she lives in America. She writes a good deal about contemporary poets because they are contemporary poets. Her book, Part of Nature, Part of Us, 1980, is about American poets. The Given and the Made, 1995, is about recent American poets. But she doesn't think that living poetry is confined to one place or one time, nor does she think that living poetry is confined, is simply the work of poets who are still breathing at the same time as we are. Uh, Professor Wendler's written magnificent books about George Herbert, 1975, John Keats, 1983, Shakespeare, 1997, Seamus Heaney, 1998. And she is writing uh, a long-awaited book about W.B. Yeats. But to end this introduction, I think I have to abandon the image of the care of poetry. I mean, having had it do a little bit of work, I think we need to give it up because the, the phrase, the notion of the care of poetry, I think for all its virtues and for all the sense of concern for poetry that it registers, it does suggest that poetry might be a little elderly or frail or ailing and needing. I mean, care, for, care of poetry sounds a little bit like care for the elderly. Uh, and, of course, poetry is not frail and not ailing and not elderly and poetry can look after itself. What can't look after itself is criticism. And this is why we're lucky to have Helen Wendler with us. With us, that is, in every sense. Helen. Thank you all for coming out on this evil night. Uh, and I hope I will be forgiven if I go on a little bit longer tonight than in the other two lectures, because tonight I want to lay a little groundwork for what it means to uh, set up an intimacy with the invisible. As you know, the three lectures are on George Herbert tonight, uh, in which the invisible is God. Uh, Walt Whitman, tomorrow night, in which the invisible is the reader in futurity, the invisible listener. And then John Ashbery on the third night, in which the invisible listener is the artist of the past, Parmigianino. 
I was moved to write this by the notion that is sort of afloat these days that poetry has nothing to offer anyone who is interested in social relations. Um, I don't think that's true, but I think it's easier if you're interested in social relations to do information retrieval in novels or in plays. So I decided that I would do something about what the lyric can tell us about social relations. And that's what was the motivation for this. The lyric poem as a private genre seems to lack the breadth of the social genres. It doesn't aim at a wide representation of society, as an epic or novel does, nor does it bring into visibility the communal antagonisms that are the life of drama. Sorry? Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. In its ordinary form, the lyric offers the representation of a single voice, all alone, recording and analyzing and formulating and changing its mind. No one else is present. Yet often the solitary person speaking is addressing someone else, someone not in the room. In the dramatic monologue, as you all know, the other person is in the room. That's why the dramatic monologue doesn't fit into the category lyric, as I understand it. The lyric poet has to be alone in the room. It has even been claimed that apostrophe, which means literally a turning away from one's strophe to address someone else, is the essence of the lyric, although there are many lyrics of solitary meditation that don't address anyone. One possible addressee in lyric is a person whom the fictive speaker knows, a lover, a patron, a family member. We may call this sort of human address horizontal, although the tone adopted may be one of formal respect, say to a patron, or even one of adoration, as in the case of a lover. The addressee is, after all, merely another human being. But there exists also, as we know in lyric, the sort of address we might call vertical, the speaker's apostrophe is directed to a person or thing above the human, inhabiting an inaccessible realm generically above the speaker. The vertically situated addressee may be a god, Christian or classical, or a nightingale or a Grecian urn, and may be situated in heaven on Parnassus or on a platonic plane where truth and beauty are one. The tone adopted by the speaker in vertical apostrophe rises above the level of respect shown to a worldly patron or the adoration shown to a beloved and manifests generally a humility or a reverence suitable to a speaker addressing the divine who is thought to lodge at a considerable distance. What all lyrics of apostrophe offer us are tones of voice through which, by analogy, we see represented various relations resembling those which we experience in life. Lyric replicates the tenderness of a parent, the jealousy of a lover, the solicitude of a friend, the humility of a sinner. Such lyrics illustrate the social relations in which the speaker is enmeshed, and they often embed within themselves the social norms embodied in various institutions, the family, the church, courtly love. But what can we say of the poet who wants not to express such relations as they are found in society, but rather to redefine them, who wants to adopt a more intimate tone towards God than that offered by the church, who wants to model an erotic relation between men not sanctioned by society, or who seeks an aesthetic identity currently unavailable but visibly present in the past. The loneliness experience when one lacks an adequate relation to others is mentioned by many poets. This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me, says Dickinson. And Hopkins asks, where art thou, friend, whom I shall never see? 
Hopkins imagines two locations for the permanently invisible friend. Perhaps he's only somewhere else in the contemporary world, sundered from my sight in the age that is. But more probably, given the unconventionality of Hopkins' character and verse, the friend cannot be imagined as existing in the present and remains the far-off promise of a time to be. You have on your handout that poignant early sonnet of Hopkins, Where art thou, friend whom I shall never see, conceiving whom I must conceive amiss, or sundered from my sight in the age that is, or far-off promise of a time to be, Thou who canst best accept the certainty that thou hast borne proportion in my bliss, that likest in me either that or this, or even for the weakness of the plea that I have taken to plead with, if the sound of God's dear pleadings have as yet not moved thee, and for those virtues I in thee have found, who say that had I known, I had approved thee, for these make all the virtues to abound. No, but for Christ, who hath foreknown and loved thee, Although Hopkins' invisible friend lives more probably in the future, a time to be than in the present, Hopkins adopts toward him a tone of plangent intimacy, confident that the friend likes in him one or another trait. At the same time, Hopkins recognizes the weakness of the plea of claiming, of claiming intimacy over an impassable gulf of time. The extreme hunger of the present casts its desire for intimacy forward, imagining a society that could produce a companion who would bear proportion in the poet's bliss. In these passages, the Dickinson remark and the Hopkins sonnet, these passages, in these passages, Dickinson and Hopkins convert the normal lyric intimacy with a known person into a rarefied form, intimacy with an unknown other, but there is yet another step lyric may take, and that is to address a permanently invisible other. The intrinsic and constitutive power of the lyric to create intimacy is best seen, in fact, when the object of intimacy can never be humanly seen or known, yet can be humanly addressed. In such a case, the unseen other becomes an unseen listener, anchoring the voice of the poet as it issues into the otherwise vacant air. I'll be considering this creation of intimacy with the invisible with respect to three poets. George Herbert not finding in conventional prayers an, ad an adequate verbal expression of his relation to the divine invents a new constellation of tones and structures in which to address a God who, though sometimes seeming to reside in a distant eternity, more often resides not only within the poet's room but even inside his heart and in an extraordinary way inside poetry itself. Walt Whitman, not finding in conventional social intercourse or in the lyrics he knew the relation to another man that he yearns for, invents an invisible reader in futurity, somewhat resembling Hopkins' imagined friend. But whereas in Hopkins that friend appears only once, in Whitman the ideal addressee is evoked throughout the first three editions of Leaves of Grass, sustaining an intimacy which more and more casts itself away from present hope into future dream. John Ashbery, not finding a fellow artist in his own time who shares his aesthetics of distortion, addresses the dead painter Francesco Parmigianino, not as someone dead, but as someone alive and listening. In inventing new relations, not available in the conventional present, the poet intimates a utopia in which such relations would be part of the known and accessible, where the sinner would be able to would be able to adopt new tones of intimacy towards a loving savior, 
where society would allow openly demonstrated love between men, where artists would not separate themselves into hostile schools of the realist and the abstract, but would recognize that all art bends reality, as the self-portrait does, into subjective distortion. My fundamental question in addressing the topic of intimacy with the invisible is how a poet makes real in language and form both the invisible addressee and his relation to that addressee, or to put it differently, how the intimacy effect is produced on the page. As I've said, this sort of intimacy springs from a fundamental loneliness, forcing the author to invent a listener unavailable in actual life. And yet something in the current social world must help to create in verse the image of the ideal listener. The poet may look for evidence of the hoped-for listener, as Herbert ransacks the Bible for hints of the accessible God, or the poet may prolong on the page a love that in actual life has been transitory, as Whitman's reader in Futurity satisfies the erotic faith which in life Herbert found fle- Whitman found fleeting. Sometimes, however, there's nothing in current life that can give hints of the intimate relation for which the poet longs, and the envisaged new addressee is summoned up by a reaction against the present relations of society. Ashbury, a 20th century artist, unable to align himself with his visible peers, finds with surprise, relief, and joy a painter of the past demonstrating an intermediate aesthetics, partly representative, partly abstractly distorted, similar to his own. I will be examining how this strange relation with a listener who is invisible, either because he's divine or because he exists only in the future or because he's long dead, can be made psychologically credible, emotionally moving, and aesthetically powerful. But it's not only a depiction of the new relation that the poem has in mind. It aims to establish within the reader's imagination a wider ethics of relation, better than can be found at present on the earth such as the utopian will of these poems, as desire calls into being an image of possibility not yet realized in life, but, it is postulated, realizable. The new relation is brought to life on the page with a wonder and confidence that are borrowed from the closest moments of intimacy in life. Intimacy with the invisible is an intimacy with hope. After reading these poems, we feel, as I hope to show, that we have taken a step forward in visualizing a better fulfillment, religious, sexual, or aesthetic, than we have yet seen. I hope to show tonight how George Herbert revises the verbal address to God that he inherited from the liturgy and from conventional prayer until it approaches the horizontal address to an intimate friend, but to show as well that this longed-for revision was not discovered immediately. He inherits ways of thinking about and addressing God from two chief sources, the Bible and the liturgy. The first affords models for intimacy with God in both the Old Testament and the New, And Herbert always longed for the horizontal relation. The vertical relation was never congenial to him. As he says in this poem, um, there was a moment, Herbert recalls with envy, when God was so familiar with his people that he had to beseech Moses to let him alone. Sweet were the days when thou didst lodge with Lot, struggle with Jacob, sit with Gideon, advise with Abraham, when thy power could not encounter Moses' strong complaints and moan. Thy words were then, let me alone. One might have sought and found thee presently at some fair oak, or bush, or cave, or well. 
Is my God this way? No, they would reply, he is to Sinai gone, as we heard tell. List, ye may hear great Aaron's bell. In this formulation, what separates Herbert from familiarity with God is his belatedness in time. And though he admits that God still dwells in the human heart, he is pinched and straightened there, he says, by sin and Satan. Only at the last judgment will God's love retrieve its great heat, but in a rather terrifying manner, and calling justice, all things burn. Intimacy and full warmth are now things lost, now that we no longer live in the patriarchal age when God was familiar with his subjects, and God's eventual wrath in the last judgment seems more evident here than his present love. Intimacy with God is yearned for rather than found. In other poems, what separates Herbert from intimacy with God is not time, as in the patriarchal age, but space, a vertical space as the usual space, which can be bridged perhaps, but only temporarily. In two beautiful poems, one Latin, one English, Herbert imagines the potential bridge to heaven, up to heaven, as one made of sunbeams. In the third of his 19 poems on his mother's death, the Latin poems on his mother's death, Herbert first imagines the son as able to let, perhaps to let his heaven-dwelling mother down to earth again by means of one of the sun's rays. But supposing this impossible, he implores the sun to multiply its rays so that the sun, twining his hand in them, may climb up to where his mother is. This silk twist, as he called the vertical bridge in another poem, The Pearl, this silk twist of sunbeams let down from heaven reappears in the poem Matins as Herbert prays that the morning light may show forth to him both the creator and his work. Teach me thy love to know that this new light which now I see may both the work and workman show, then by a sunbeam I will climb to thee. In Artillery, another poem, the distance from God is bridged by a shooting star that God sends down to chastise Herbert. The shooting star is the night version, one could say, of the sunbeam. Herbert retorts to God, I, he says, have stars and shooters too. (laughs) He can send something back up in the way of anger towards God. My tears and prayers night and day do woo and work up to thee, yet thou dost refuse. It is a loneliness precluding full intimacy that generates such vertical bridges. They represent a model well known to us all, the Jacob's Ladder model, in which distance is felt within intimacy and intimacy within distance. The desire to merge entirely is implied, but distance cannot at the present be made to disappear. In his desire for entire intimacy, Herbert sometimes becomes unable to tolerate any such distance at all. The poem Clasping of Hands imagines a fused identity, repudiating altogether these first and second person adjectives, mine and thine. Although clasping of hands, which of course takes its title from a gesture of human intimacy and friendship, although clasping of hands begins with a statement of mutual possession, Lord, thou art mine, and I am thine, it ends in its last line, praying that its former usage of these pronouns may be abrogated, that some new state, now only negatively describable, can be attained where there will be no thine and mine, Oh, be mine still, still make me thine, or rather make no thine and mine. This utopian merging can hardly take place in the fallen present, 
and Herbert forsakes the hope of annihilating distance between himself and God in other poems. Still, the fact of distance, once postulated, provokes the fear that there may be, at least at times, no available bridge, that the sinner will be abandoned to a state of perpetual estrangement, as in that remarkable poem, The Pilgrimage. In that poem, which consists of stages of a pilgrimage, the weary pilgrim, after passing the cave of desperation and the rock of pride, leaving fancy's meadow, getting through care's copse, and being robbed in the wild of passion, believes that he has at last come to the foot of Zion's hill, where he will find God by climbing naturally vertically to the top. And then this is the way the poem ends. Well, not quite, but the end doesn't change the the, um, meaning. At length, he says, after all those divagations, at length I got unto the gladsome hill where lay my hope, where lay my heart, and climbing still when I had gained the brow and top, a lake of brackish waters on the ground was all I found. With that abashed and struck with many a sting of swarming fears, I fell and cried, Alas, my king, can both the way and end be tears? The pilgrim of this poem never does reach his goal, and the distant king addressed here never embraces his subject in a final reconciliation. With such a king, intimacy becomes, it would seem, unattainable. How is Herbert to formulate and make real the intimacy he desires given the obstacles of time and space, sin and Satan, and the inscrutability and distance of a sovereign God? If God is no longer familiarly with us on earth as he was in the days of Abraham, he might at least, the poet thinks, in a rather unsatisfactory model of intimacy, be an intermittent guest in our house. Yet if he does not make a constant stay, we feel the absence of a consistent intimacy with him. The inconstancy of God's presence is the source of much of Herbert's pain in the volume of the temple. At the same time, paradoxically, it's the occasion for some of Herbert's most intimate tones of reproach. Whither away, delight? Thou camest but now. Wilt thou so soon depart and give me up tonight? For many weeks of lingering pain and smart, but one half hour of comfort to my heart. If distance and intermittent visits will not yield the desired closeness, Herbert decides to try to find helpers across the vertical distance if he can't do it alone. He proposes to Sunday, the day of the Lord, that together they fly hand in hand to heaven. Or, in another instance, he says to church music, if I travel in your company, you know the way to heaven's door. He even urges a star to refine him with its fire and then bear him back to its native heaven where his Savior's face is crowned with beams of light, that so among the rest I may glitter and curl and wind as they. That winding is their fashion of adoration. But intimacy with a heavenly companion, a star, or church music is no substitute for intimacy with God himself. Perhaps God can be brought nearer, Herbert reflects, by reimagining not as king or lord, but rather as parent. In this model, God more closely resembles a mother than a father. From thee, he says, all pity flows. Mothers are kind because thou art and dost dispose to them apart. In one of the poems called Longing, in one of his early poems, Perseverance, not reprinted um, 
in the temple, but in the Williams, occurring in the early Williams manuscript, earlier Williams manuscript. Herbert, in perseverance, Herbert implicitly represents himself as an infant clinging to the breast of a maternal god. Only my soul hangs on thy promises with face and hands, clinging unto thy breast, clinging and crying, crying without cease, thou art my rock, thou art my rest. This kindly parent, who appears in several poems, is dulcet, tender, issuing reproofs only of the mildest sort. In the caller, for instance, as you all know, the Lord has listened patiently and without interrupting as the frustrated poet raved and grew more fierce and wild with every word, at every word. And the Lord, instead of defending his own actions or rebuking the sinner, merely calls his straying son. But as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word, methought I heard one calling, child, and I replied, my Lord, Although God styles himself a parent by addressing the poet as child, the ashamed child does not dare to claim the proffered filial relation. He replies, not father, like the prodigal son, but my Lord. When Herbert's own heart is in better order, as in his poem, Evensong, he, it's wonderful, uh, it's, it tells you, as does Matins, this is what he wishes they would say at those services. He goes to the Anglican service of Matins. He goes to Evensong. But they never quite say the things he would be liking to say or to hear said. So he writes his own Matins and he writes his own Evensong. And this is the part of the beautiful Evensong. There he can wonderingly see in the God of love not a lord, but a quasi-maternal parent reassuring human children as they fall asleep. It is a, a wonderful a poem by a very anxious person who was never thinking his work was done because he was, uh, since he was the vicar of a parish, he was constantly going around and seeing the sick and the dead and reciting prayers for the dying and whatnot. And uh, it must have been a great consolation to him to be able to think that the day's work was over. And he says to God, yet still thou goest on, and now with darkness, closest weary eyes, saying to man, it doth suffice. Henceforth, repose. Your work is done. I muse, which shows more love, the day or night? That is the gale, this the harbor. That is the walk, and this the arbor. Or that the garden, this the grove. My God, thou art all love. Not one poor minute scapes thy breast, but brings a favor from above. And in this love, more than in bed, I rest. When Herbert can feel that God is all love, his work attains the intimacy that he craves. The word love becomes, the word love itself becomes for Herbert a talisman of mutuality. Because it testifies to a right disposition of the poet's heart, it can enter into a chiasmus of almost symmetrical relation with God, in the temper, where divine love and human love touch and overlap in a beautiful chiasmus. Thy power and love, my love and trust, make one place everywhere. The word love here stands for an identity of feeling, rendering God's love comprehensible by analogy with Herbert's own, the same word used for each of them, while still distinguishing, as clasping of hands at the end did not, the two participants, one of whom extends benign power, while the other 
responds with absolute trust. Even when he imagines a symmetry of love, Herbert does not feel that he can use the two active verbs of this mutual relation, I love you, you love me, but rather testifies solely in a poem such as a true hymn, or in the poem, a true hymn, can testify solely to his own feelings. Those are the only ones he can have access to. Wherein he finds not only his own love given, I would love, he says to God, but also love received from God, I am loved. God has reason to complain, the poet has said, if a verse, although it rhymes, is motivated by no inner devotion, but if the supplicant's heart be moved, even if his verse is interior, nothing is wanting to the intimacy. If the heart be moved, although the verse be somewhat scant, God doth supply the want. As when the heart says, sighing to be approved, Oh, could I love, and stops, God writeth, loved. The fact that the divinely inscribed loved not only fills out the verse line, but also completes the rhyme, means that when the poet's heart fills with love, oh, could I love, God steps in to make the somewhat scant verse perfect in all respects, in thought, in rhythm, and in rhyme. In this model of intimacy, friends intuit each other's unspoken desire, as God has intuited Herbert's desire. Friends intuit each other's unspoken desire and fulfill it without being asked. One friend is the completion in meaning, in surge of feeling, and in art of the other. The presence by intervention of the invisible listener is here made palpable on the page as God himself writes a word of the poem. A relation with the God who writes or speaks as a friend, in most cases Jesus rather than God the Father, becomes Herbert's most credible dramatic model of almost horizontal intimacy with the divine. God as a parent, however solicitous, remains in an asymmetrical and vertically distant relation with the soul, adult to child. Only in the relation of adult to adult can Herbert find a more adequate image of intimacy and create a humanly realized actor in the drama of salvation. Friendship may have become Herbert's best model for his connection with God because it was the adult relation he most prized. Friendship is therefore also the model by which he judges his own shortcomings in his doings with God, as he confesses in a poem called Unkindness. With respect to earthly friends, he says, he makes sure that whatever he intends will not damage the friendship. He will defend his friend from the least spot or thought of blame. He freely gives to a friend in need, and he puts the friend's interest above his own. But with God, he fears, the reverse is true. Each stanza of the poem on kindness ends with the poet's disgrace, as he not only treats God worse than his friends, worse than he treats his friends, he treats God in the shame-faced last line, worse even than he treats his foes. I would not use a friend as I use thee. I could not use a friend as I use thee. I cannot use a friend as I use thee, nor would I use a friend as I use thee. Yet use I not my foes as I use thee. It's not surprising then that Herbert, who finds in Jesus the, the friend, a model of what would be his own best self, encounters God with no hint of distance in his moments of writing, in vindicating the creation of poetry as an access to intimacy. Herbert declares that although verse may be held in worldly contempt, yet it is of inestimable value in enabling intimacy with God and the sense of his favors. 
When writing verse, the poet says to God, I am with thee, and most take all. My God, a verse is not a crown, no point of honor, a gay suit, no hawk, a banquet, a renown, not a good sword, nor yet a lute. It cannot vault or dance or play, it never was in France or Spain, nor can it entertain the day with my great stable or domain. It is no office, art, or news, nor the exchange or busy hall, but it is that which, while I use, I am with thee, and most take all. Poetry is not, a possess- not possessions, nor actions, nor institutions. The negative mode of definition, not this, not that, familiar from theology, could hardly be carried further than it is in these ten lines of concession, followed by the but which tips the balance with its single complicated formulation, a verse is that thing which, when I am in its ambience, situates me in intimacy with God and makes me possessed of every good. I am with thee does not abrogate difference of persons. There is still a mine, an I, and a thou, there's a me and a thee. I am with thee does not abrogate difference of persons, but it dares to suggest a union of friends, a state well-defined in our normal lives and therefore available to be projected onto the plane of the divine. In the poems in which, in the person of Jesus, God speaks as a contemporary friend, we find some of Herbert's most winningly intimate lines as he emboldens himself to write dialogue for Jesus to speak. Um, There are such other literary um, compositions. Among them, another long one of Herbert's was ever grief like mine, the sacrifice. But it's something to decide you can write dialogue for Jesus, new dialogue for Jesus. The paradigm of such poems is Love Unknown, in which, sorry, love the poem called Love Unknown, which opens with the defining Herbertian confiding tone. The narrator says to an unspecified interlocutor, Dear friend, sit down. The tale is long and sad. The the naive narrator has no idea that his interlocutor friend is Jesus. Although he assumes that in the friend he has a willing listener, he doubts that the friend has any power to extricate him from the abuse he says he has suffered from his master, of which he complains. Dear friend, sit down. The tale is long and sad, and in my faintings I presume your love will more comply than help. As the narrator recounts the insults heaped on his heart by the servants of his master, the friend offers mild critical observations, always phrased subjectively with the clause, I fear. His heart, says the narrator, was thrown into a fountain of blood where it was washed and wrung, the very ringing yet and force of tears. At this, the friend really re- merely remarks, your heart was foul, I fear. The heart was then thrown into a cauldron. The man threw my heart into the scalding pan, my heart that brought my offering. Do you understand? The offerer's heart. To this pained insistence, the friend merely repeats his previous comment, changing only an adjective. If a foul heart perhaps needed washing, a hard heart might have needed melting. Your heart was hard, I fear. The narrator then recounts with continued indignation that he found his bed stuffed with painful thoughts, I would say thorns. He becomes pitiful. Dear, could my heart not break when with my pleasures even my rest was gone? The friend replies with another temperate adjective, your heart was dull, I fear, needed some thorns. 
At this third gentle suggestion that the master's abuse was warranted, the narrator at last collapses, acknowledges his faults, and recognizes his own spiritual sloth. Finally, the interlocutor, so very laconic until this closing moment, speaks at last at length, addressing the narrator in his turn as friend, as the narrator had addressed him. In his comment, he reveals the gracious adjectives that will reverse the previous foul, hard, dull status of the narrator's heart. Truly, friend, for aught I hear, your master shows to you more favors than you wot of. Mark the end. The font did only what was old renew. The cauldron suppled what was grown too hard. The thorns did quicken what was grown too dull. All did but strive to mend what you had marred. Wherefore be cheered and praise him to the full each day, each hour, each moment of the week who fain would have you be new, tender, quick. This friend, so tender himself, yet so certain in his interpretation, answers the narrator's resentment with instruction, not reproof, blaming ignorance rather than sin, suggesting that the narrator has received not abuse but more favors than you wot of, and displacing querulous narrative with benign result. Mark the end. If your master wants for you only the best, that you should be new, tender, quick, surely your own wishes for yourself must tend in that direction as well. And if ordeals, the font, the cauldron, the thorns, were the difficult means, the end at least is fair. To put off the old man of sin for the new man of grace, to put off the dullness of spiritual sloth for the quickness of eternal life, is a convincing process described by the friend. The friend speaks as if renewing and suppling and quickening are all recurrent natural processes, cycles in which marring is mended, foulness is renewed, hardness is suppled, and dullness is quickened. He names and justifies the processes. He doesn't reproach. He urges cheerfulness and praise, not penance or remorse. Jesus' function, then, in love unknown is that of a spontaneous interpreter of the speaker's complaints, making love unknown into love known. Herbert conceives of his reader, I think, in terms of comparable intimacy, as the poems say to us, in effect, Dear friends, sit down. The tale is long and sad. Through Jesus' example here, Herbert offers us a model of how to listen to an intimate friend who is suffering. Jesus listens patiently to the whole resentful tale. His comments are, though interpretive, not direct reproofs. Not a global you, but an aspect of you, your heart, has faltered. Jesus' comments are brief, kind-hearted, and tentatively phrased. Divine intimacy in this playlet model abstains from condemnation, remains within a descriptive neutrality in clarifying the sinner's predicament, urges a happier state of mind, and confirms that there was meaning in the ordeal undergone. We recognize Herbert's Pauline model, charity is patient, charity is kind. And the modern reader may, in seeing Herbert's forbearing Jesus, recognize the ideal therapist, a proof of what a credible human presence Herbert has created, avant la lettre, so to speak, on the page. But there are even better moments of intimacy to be had and to learn from than the asymmetrical, however kind, moment between mistaken novice and more able interpreter. These better moments are formulated in the last two poems of the temple, Herbert, sorry, the last two poems of the temple, Heaven and Love Three. In heaven, the first of these, these are among the poems on the last things, death, judgment, heaven, 
cause hell doesn't appear in Herbert. In the first of these, Heaven, an echo poem, the most beautiful echo poem ever written, Herbert suggests that to be an intimate friend is to answer with improvements a speaker's questions using, to the speaker's surprise, his very own syllables to do so. It's a meeting of minds like no other in verse. In heaven, the speaker, unlike the speaker of love unknown, is always right, the the poor little speaker who's usually wrong in Herbert. This time he's right in his phonemes, which means his heart is in the right place. But he's not yet sure of his own future destiny, and so he must be confirmed in his righteousness by having God's word, sounding from the immortal leaves of the Bible, replay and revise his very words in a reiterated celestial ratifying of his syllables. Oh, who will show me those delights on high? I, thou echo, thou art mortal, all men know. No, wert thou not born among the trees and leaves? Leaves, what leaves are they? Impart the matter holy, holy. Are holy leaves the echo then of bliss? Yes. Then tell me, what is that supreme delight? Light. Light to the mind. What shall the will enjoy? Joy. But are there cares and business with the pleasure? Leisure. Light, joy, and leisure. But shall they persever? Ever. This exquisite poem incarnates a fantasy of perfect intimacy in which the celestial friend's mind musically echoes our own. We find nothing in the friend's echo that was not first found in ourselves, and in our antiphony with the friend we will find ourselves the same but improved and approved. This relation, like the one in Love Unknown, allows for a disparity of knowledge between the two friends. Echo knows more than the speaker. This is perhaps a necessary aspect of intimacy for an intellectual such as Herbert. An intimate ideally would supply growth in knowledge as well as reciprocity and affection. Heaven, this echo poem, is a poem of promises, but without the anguish of that earlier poem of promises, perseverance. In the poem Heaven, the promises are explicit from the first line to the last. The soul will be shown the delights on high, the light, joy, and leisure that will persever ever, in which he somehow genetically knew about in order to produce the right words that the echo could match. It might be thought that heaven then reaches the utmost model of intimacy, realistically preserving a duality, as clasping of hands did not, but intimating a chiming coincidence of mentalities and words. However, the intimacy of the poem Heaven is intellectual and linguistic, pertaining to the mind rather than the body, which is present only here, only in the insubstantial higher sense of hearing the invisible voice from the invisible listener. In Herbert's deepest investigation into the actions, gestures, and language of intimacy, the model he presents is not a merely mental or intellectual one, as in heaven, but it's rather that of physical and emotional sustenance in one, eating and drinking in the house of a friend, whose name is immediately given as love. Here, Herbert's speaker is a guest in the house of love, and the deliberately ungendered friend is first encountered as the host at the door, bidding welcome, gently putting aside the guest's protestations of physical and spiritual unworthiness, 
and to the guest's determination to take the lowly place of servant, the host replies that, his, that the role of the speaker is rather that of desired guest. In love three as in heaven, the formal figure for intimacy is antiphony, but here there is antiphony of gesture as well as language. I've given you a little diagram of the gestural back and forth, but I'd rather have you look at the poem itself. In the poem, as you can see, it's a poem about the saved soul coming to the gate of heaven, and uh, instead of the saints go marching in and so forth, this poor little guest was most abject. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. In this depiction of intimacy as a heavenly banquet, love might seem to know more than the sinner, as did the interpreting friend in love unknown and the supplementing echo in heaven. But as we think about the answers love here supplies, we see that love is merely reminding the sinner of things he already knows. He knows certainly that God the Father made him eyes and all, and he knows who, that is to say, uh, the Son, the Savior, bore the blame for his sin. Love's gentle insistence here is not one of instruction. After all, the saved soul, already admitted to the banquet of the just, knows all he needs to know. Rather, love's remarks function as reassurance. Of course you are not a guest worthy to be here, love agrees, because nobody can deserve heaven. So that when the sinner says that what he lacks is a guest worthy to be here, love answers not with you are he, but rather with you shall be he. Love's shall be, significantly not the will be of futurity, represents the ordaining salvific will of God and its efficacious means, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. In this representation, as in heaven, the sinner will be improved while remaining himself. You and worthy guest are firmly joined in the copula of identification, a copula of certainty guaranteed by those promises on which Herbert has counted before. We are reminded by, so I did sit and eat, of the firm, I am with thee and most take all, that ended the quiddity. Love Three has sometimes been described in recent criticism as a poem mirroring the elaborate courtesies of the Renaissance court. But courtesy is almost the, the opposite of intimacy, and intimacy goes far deeper than courtesy. Love can read the mind of the shame-faced sinner. Love is quick-eyed, observant of the guest's discomfort. Love extends the hand of genuine welcome, not merely that, the greeting of courtesy. This love as a model of intimacy goes beyond the disinterestedness of friendship, its reciprocity of mutual good, which was evoked as a model relation in unkindness. Love's generosity exceeds reciprocity. It is pressed down and running over. And in the end, it substitutes for courtly reciprocity a humble service. 
The host in a heavenly rewriting of courtly manners stands and serves, the sinner sits and eats. Our great difficulty in accepting intimacy is is acted out by the mortified sinner, but in the end he capitulates in the graceful monosyllables, in the grateful monosyllables of the inexpressible, so I did sit and eat, followed by silence. What is the attraction to a poet of intimacy of addressing or describing an invisible friend? In actual worldly relations, and Herbert had close relations with family, colleagues, parishioners, and a wife, but in ordinary worldly relations, in actual worldly relations, there are countless obstacles to intimacy, time, age, circumstance, illness, overwork. An invisible addressee or listener, by contrast, makes the poem resemble one of those pure problems posable only in mathematics, where one assumes the absence of friction or postulates a pure vacuum or inscribes a dimensionless point or stipulates any number of, any number of other conditions impossible in reality. In the ether of the invisible, psychological models can be constructed unhindered by anything but the speaker's yearning for the proposed relation. And so the conditions and hypotheses of intimacy, such as those we have seen, can be explored freely, and an ethics of intimate relation can be suggested. I close with a few remarks on tone. Besides his skill in inventing those models of intimacy, of which you climb to somebody, or you climb with companions to somebody, or you go up, you find a silk twist, or you find an interpreter who interprets your, lang- your life to you. All of those models of intimacy, clasping of hands, reciprocity, mutuality, oh, could I love, loved, all of those. Besides his skill in inventing models, Herbert's great achievement in the poetry of intimacy is the gamut of tones he brings to bear during his experiments. The quintessential Herbertian tone, as I've said, is one of intimate confiding, as in, dear friend, sit down, my tale is long and sad. But there are also hectic tones of rebellion, pleading tones of entreaty, wincing ones of shame, seductive ones of persuasion, angry ones of resentment, ecstatic tones of joy, brooding tones of depression, hopeful tones of interrogation. Herbert could be described as the ethno-linguist of the gamut of tonality available to intimate conversation. Nobody else, for example, has imagined so well in verse what the invisible God might say back to a rebellious soul. We have already seen some unobtrusive remarks of the invisible friend, but the most extended conversation of the sinner with his divine interlocutor comes in the moving little poem called Dialogue, In it, the complaining sinner reproaches Jesus for wishing to save a wretch like himself. That's only a screen reproach, really. He's tired of being asked to be good. So he says in speaking with forked tongue, so to speak, Sweetest Savior, if my soul were but worth the having, quickly should I then control any thought of waving. But when all my care and pains cannot give the name of gains to thy wretch so full of stains, what delight or hope remains? The first half of this stanza is balanced in statement and in rhyme. If, my soul, two lines with an A rhyme and a B rhyme, and then the consequent, then, quickly should I then control, if then, two lines also A and B. This format betokens rational thought and equilibrated argument. But the second half of the stanza, prefaced by the pure adversative but, rises in a crescendo of undeviating rhyme, C, 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 forsaking altogether the pretense of balance established by the first four lines. 
As the voice reiterates its aggrieved reproaches, Jesus replies, What, child, is the balance thine, thine the poise and measure? If I say, thou shalt be mine, finger not my treasure. What the gains in having thee do amount to, only he who for man was sold can see. That transferred the accounts to me. Jesus' tone in this stanza is one of poise and measure throughout, the tone of one balancing accounts in accordance with evidence only he can see. There is an emotional crescendo here, too, in lines 5 to 7 with the C rhymes, matching and countering the speaker's own. But a contest of suffering is averted by Jesus putting his own case in the third person, he who for man was sold, though then me creeps in at the end. The only departure from the measured tone is the introductory, what child? This is a savior, not an accountant speaking. Yet the savior has yet to speak in the first person about his own redemptive acts. The sinner's answer to Jesus' rebuttal is casuistic and petulant. His first quatrain, again the balanced one, A-B-A-B, is legalistic, and his second quatrain, with its crescendo on the single rhyme, is dangerous to his salvation. But, as I can see no merit, he likes to start off with but, 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 as I can see no merit leading to this favor, so the way to fit me for it is beyond my savor. As the reason, then, is thine, so the way is none of mine. I disclaim the whole design. Sin disclaims, and I resign. The disjunction of mine and thine is here complete. The sinner and sin now share the same verb. I disclaim, sin disclaims. Herbert creates tones on the page with wonderful ingenuity, and much could be said about his means. In his quarrel with Jesus here, the sinner uses theological terms such as merit and worldly ones such as favor, mixing two worlds in a dangerous way, and looks to his own savor, the French savoir, is, is beyond my savoir, beyond my savor. He looks to his own savor rather than his savior for the way to fit into Christ's design. The speaker's tone is both self-serving and resentful. I've exaggerated, of course. And Herbert is never, as I said, speaking with forked tongue. He's simply expressing a human emotion. The speaker's tone is both self-serving and resentful, pretending to logic as so, but as I can see no merit, so the way to fit me for it, while succumbing to petulant emotion, I disclaim, I resign. The terrible implied copula, I am sin, which underlines the identity clauses, I disclaim, sin disclaims, two things being equal to the same thing or equal to each other. The terrible implied copula, I am sin, represents the utter surrender of the human's will to the persuasions of sin. And uh, yet Jesus refuses to accept this resignation of his design, aware that his previous rational accounting, what child is the balance thine, thine the poise and measure, that transferred the accounts to me, aware that his previous rational accounting has not convinced the sinner, Jesus turns now to an emotional reference to his sacrifice, this time in the first person, reminding the sinner of a true form of resigning, Jesus' own. Sin disclaims and I resign, the sinner has said, that is all, if that I could get without repining, and my clay, my creature, would follow my resigning. That as I did freely part with my glory and desert, left all joys to feel all smart, and the sinner breaks in, ah, no more, thou breakst my heart. 
Jesus avails himself of the power of the stanzaic single rhyme crescendo, recalling how he left the glories and joys of heaven to feel all smart. As he does this, the recalcitrant soul is overcome with sorrow, and the poem ends with the sinner's pang, Ah, no more, thou breakst my heart. This model of intimacy inscribes the emotional and or intellectual and emotional tones of an intimate dispute. It's always good to take up a quarrel if you're in, in Venting models of intimacy, because certainly intimacy provokes quarrels. This model of intimacy inscribes the emotional and intellectual tones of an intimate dispute in which the emotional stanzas, one of four, bracket the logical ones in the middle, and we hear the tones change in consequence. Jesus' last crescendo, we notice, is missing its final line. What would he have said if the sinner had not interrupted him? If only you would follow my resigning, says Jesus, and we might imagine that if Jesus had been allowed to finish his whole stanza, he might have said something like, that as I did freely part with my glory and desert, left all joys to feel all smart, you in grief should yield your heart. But Jesus doesn't get to finish. The sinner, in a convincing sign of intimacy, finishes Jesus' sentence and stanza and rhyme for him, and the coincidence of Jesus' supposed wish and the sinner's complying acclamation shows us the sinner's capitulation to his Savior's aesthetic design as well as his moral one. To finish Jesus' remarks, to give Jesus a rhyme, to um, finish his sentence for him strikes me as divine chutzpah of some sort, uh, arrogance. But it works very well here. Um, the ethics of intimacy here recommends that if one strategy of reconciliation falls, a genuine friend, as Jesus does here, will try another until minds meet. The perfect symmetries of the Herbertian poem of intimacy, the minuet of welcome and guilt at the heavenly banquet of love three, the reciprocal exchanges in the echo poem heaven and in this poem dialogue, reveal how completely these poems represent pure theoretical cases, experiments in mutuality. By projecting what we know of the pains and difficulties of actual intimacy onto a symbolic plane of abstract consideration, Herbert composes a manual of instruction toward a better intimacy in the real world. However, by sequestering his, his intimacy with the invisible from intimacy admitting the sexual, Herbert sets limits to the tones he permits himself. Walt Whitman, to whom we will next turn, takes up the intimacy of friend and friend, projects it onto the future, and sexualizes it in a fashion both intense and equivocal, requiring a different set of models and tones from those we have seen in the poetry of Herbert. Thank you.